Doings of Doyle is sponsored by Belanger Books, home of the best Sherlock Holmes anthologies featuring today's top Sherlockian authors. Belanger Books is the only authorised publisher of Solar Ponds Mysteries, continuing the Sherlock Holmes legacy into the 21st century. Visit them today at belangerbooks.com. Welcome to Doings of Doyle, a podcast dedicated to the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Professor Challenger, Brigadier Gerard, and of course, Sherlock Holmes. I'm Mark Jones. And I'm Paul Chapman. And together we'll be exploring Doyle's eclectic bibliography to understand more about the great man's life and work. We'll be discussing his fiction and non-fiction, the well-known and the obscure. And stopping by Baker Street along the way. You can find out more at doingsofdoyle.com or follow us at doingsofdoyle on Twitter. Hello and welcome to episode 20. This time we travel in the footsteps of one of Conan Doyle's childhood friends to 19th century Japan, where a criminal heist is being planned, in Jelen's voyage. And here's Paul to introduce the story. In the Japanese treaty port of Yokohama in the mid-1860s, life is an uncertain commodity. Political turmoil and angrily dissident samurai mean the barely tolerated community of Western traders, diplomats and adventurers lead a tenuous and dangerous existence. In this febrile atmosphere, two young British clerks have raided their employer's reserves to pay off their substantial gambling debts. They have two months to recoup their losses before the theft is discovered. But then they hear that their boss has returned early from a business trip and announced a snap audit. Jelen's Voyage was written in summer 1892 at a time when Conan Doyle was really um, enjoying the fame and fortune from the adventures of Sherlock Holmes, which had just concluded in the Strand magazine. And it was most likely on the back of the success of the Sherlock Holmes stories that he was contacted by an unusual publication, Filmay's Illustrated Winter Annual, to provide a short story. And thanks to Alistair Duncan's diligent work for his book, The Norwood Author, we know a little bit more about the writing of Jelen's Voyage, in that uh, the Norwood News, for 27th of August 1892, carried this in its gossip column. Our neighbour, Mr Conan Doyle, has undertaken to write a story of 3,000 words for Phil May's Christmas annual. Gossip, which in this case is likely to be accurate, has it that Mr Doyle is to get £50 for the story. Perhaps this is the largest sum the author of Sherlock Holmes has, during his brilliantly successful career, received for a single short story. Perhaps, too, it is a high watermark in what can only be called the popular value of the English short story. And as uh, Alistair points out, that figure of £50 is significant because it's the same figure that Conan Doyle secured from the Strand to complete the adventures of Sherlock Holmes when he was approached in October 1891. And it certainly sounds like the remarkably accurate anonymous source was Conan Doyle himself putting about his his going rate. What's really remarkable, though, is that it shows Conan Doyle could command this kind of return for a a short story that didn't contain uh, Sherlock Holmes. The story was first published in the UK in an unusual title, Phil May's Illustrated Winter Annual, which came out in November 1892. And uh, the commissioner was a British caricaturist called Phil May. He was an interesting figure. He was born in Leeds in Yorkshire in 1864 uh, and started out as a small boy sketching people at the Grand Theatre in Leeds before he joined a travelling theatrical troupe at the age of 15. 
And then he moved to London at the age of 17, where he had a hard time of it, sleeping rough on the embankment and and begging for a living. But eventually he managed to sell commissions to the theatres and picked up work with a, a journal called the St. Stephen's Review, which was a one of the conservative unionist papers where he provided political cartoons. He then moved to Australia, and it was at the Sydney Bulletin that he produced several hundred illustrations before he returned to London three years later, back to the St. Stephen's Review, and also picked up work with journals like Punch and, and The Graphic over time. But the turning point for him was in 1891, when he illustrated a series of articles called The Parson and the Painter, written by the fantastically named Reverend Joseph Slapkins, which really highlighted his ability for um, uh, humorous caricature. And he had a wonderfully loose style, very playful, uh, with a a real economy of words. And he's regarded now as one of the great figures of uh, British um, caricature who helped to move the medium forward from the days of Hogarth and, and indeed Dickie Doyle in Punch magazine in the 1840s and 50s through to the modern humorous cartoon of the newspapers. Now, the Winter Annual continued to run uh, until after his death in 1904. The last issue was a posthumous issue. Um, and we don't really know what connected Conan Doyle with Phil May, although Phil May was part of that um, bohemian set and mixed with the likes of uh, Barr and Barry and Jerome K. Jerome, uh, part of the Idler group, and we'll come back to the Idler in a little bit. We unfortunately haven't been able to see a copy of the Winter Annual for 1892, so we don't know whether or not Phil May actually illustrated the story. Um, his illustrations tended to come between the articles or the stories within within the annuals. But we do have a copy of the 1893 one, which features A Memory of the Pacific by Clark Russell, whose uh, fine sea stories were enjoyed by Dr. Watson in The Five Orange Pips. And in fact, the 1896 issue has a Sherlock Holmes pastiche called The Rundgen Raider by Mr. M, uh, which features Shylock Bones. Um, in the USA, Jelland's Voyage first appeared in Harper's Weekly in, on the 12th of November, 1892, uh, that was Conan Doyle's second contribution to Harper's. He'd previously supplied A Straggler of 15 the year before. And he would go on to supply The Parasite in 1894. In between, um, Harper's would really go down in history um, for being the, uh, uh, the the serializer of the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes from January 1893 for the American audience. And for a long time, Jelland's Voyage didn't really make it into a collection. It finally appeared in Round the Fire Stories in 1908, which Conan Doyle said were all, quote, concerned with the grotesque and with the terrible, such tales as might be read round the fire upon a winter's night, which nicely fits with the framing device of the story. And in the 90s, there was uh, a, a nice little pamphlet produced by Hirayama Yuichi um, entitled The Annotated Jelland's Voyage, in which he uh, walks us through the history and the background to the story. And uh, that's a great, uh, a great little pamphlet if you, if you can find it. And Yuichi's annotated Jelland's Voyage has the subheading The Only Japanese Story Written by Conan Doyle, which begs the question why Conan Doyle chose to set a story in um, in Japan. And for that, we need to go back into his childhood in Edinburgh and his friendship with Willie Burton. Yeah, this friendship had a, had a curious beginning, really, um, because uh, William Kennemond Burton uh, was the son of, of uh, the lawyer and historian John Hill Burton. Uh, who later became the historiographer royal of Scotland. 
that John Hilburton's sister Mary was very friendly with Mary Doyle, Arthur Conan Doyle's mother. And there was one point in the the, the mid-1860s uh, where problems within the Doyle family, partly caused by Charles Doyle's alcoholism and, and erratic behaviour, led Mary Doyle to, in a, in a way, almost take refuge in Mary Burton's house. And through the connection with Mary Burton, young Arthur became friendly with, with young William Burton, uh, who's only three years his senior. And they, they would meet up in, in John Hill Burton's library, which, which young Arthur had the, uh, had, had the, the, the runoff, uh, which will have helped in his, his early intellectual development. But yes, the, the, the two boys seem to have got on very, very well. Um, and and they, they both ended up following uh, scientific careers. Arthur obviously became a doctor and uh, William Burton became a, a, an engineer. William left uh, Edinburgh Collegiate School in 1873 and was apprenticed to Brown Brothers and Co. Limited, hydraulic and mechanical engineers, uh, also in Edinburgh. And he seems to have done rather well with them. But in 1879, he resigned as chief draftsman um, in order to enter into a partnership with his uncle, Cosmo Innes, uh, another engineer, designing water systems in London. And this, when he was in London, he actually visited um, Arthur Conan Doyle when, when, when Doyle was in his early days of practice in South Sea and Portsmouth. Mm. But the story gets quite exotic uh, in 1887, uh, when William Burton was, was offered a post at the not long established uh, Imperial University in Tokyo, in, in Japan. This is the period which we'll, we'll, we'll go into shortly, uh, a period of transition for Japan, uh, where they were really wanting to westernize very quickly and were asking for Western experts uh, to mm. teach their own people. So uh, Willie Burton accepted this offer uh, and uh, went out to Japan um, and became a professor of sanitary engineering at Tokyo Imperial University. And al although William Burton isn't particularly well known in this country, he has left uh, an impressive legacy uh, in Japan, where he, he is regarded as a founding father of, of Japan's sanitary and environmental engineering infrastructure. Uh, and he was also, interestingly, he was instrumental in the design and construction of Tokyo's first skyscraper, or cloud scraper, as they, they were known uh, to, to the Japanese. Uh, the Ryonkaku, which is popularly known as the Asakusa 12 Stories, um, which opened and became a big tourist attraction uh, in 1890. Uh, it had Tokyo's first electric lift in it as well, although <laughs> that became a little bit dangerous and, and, and um, was, was actually stopped. Um, but it, it, it continued as, as um, one of the, one of the, the landmarks of Tokyo uh, until 1923, when sadly um, the top few stories fell off in the Great Earthquake. Mm. Uh, and unfortunately, the, uh, the Japanese army had to demolish what was left. And we may have Willie Burton to thank for some of Conan Doyle's earliest ventures into into publication, really, because of their shared interest in photography. By 1881, Willie Burton was a frequent contributor to several photography journals, notably uh, the British Journal of Photography, and he was very friendly with its assistant editor. And it was probably because of that friendship that Conan Doyle felt disposed to submit an article to the British Journal of Photography uh, his first being after cormorants with a camera in October 1881. And that was the first of several articles um, which he submitted to that journal right up till 1884. Um, and during this time, his articles make frequent 
references to to Willie Burton. And similarly, Willie Burton's uh, articles make frequent references to Conan Doyle. So there was very clearly a a lively exchange of ideas between them. Uh, Gibson and Green wrote an excellent book, The Unknown Conan Doyle Essays on Photography in the 80s. And uh, their introduction covers this in a fair bit more detail. Yeah, um, and the, the, the photographic connection uh, between Burton and Doyle did, did carry on for some time. And, and we know that um, Doyle's left in one of his letters to his mother, uh, talks about um, Burton coming down from London with, with, with a, a, a number of characters whom Doyle describes as photographic swells <laughs> um, to visit him and talk photography in, in Portsmouth. Um, but after that time, Doyle's own interest in photography seems to have, have dropped off, really. Mm. Um, but Willie Burton carried on with his interest and, and took the interest to, to Japan uh, and contributed to a number of, of photographic books in, in Japan. And he was also found a member of the Japan Photographic Society. And Willie Burton now is little more than a footnote in the story of Conan Doyle's life. Um, he often comes up in the context of The Engineer's Thumb, the Sherlock Holmes story, which was written in 1891, appeared in 1892. And uh, I think Owen Dudley Edwards said that Burton supplied Conan Doyle with authentic detail for The Engineer's Thumb. But um, there's been so much criticism of the engineering content within The Engineer's Thumb, uh, not least of which disguising a uh, hydraulic coining press within a two-story building at uh, it would be surprising if there was actually some engineering input into the story. But certainly Willie Burton does appear in other Conan Doyle writings. Probably the most obvious direct reference comes in the 1882 short story, Our Derby Sweepstakes, um, in which a, a character uh, keeps a fish in the house, which creates a horrible smell, which results in her mother writing an indignant letter to Mr. Burton, who had pronounced our drainage to be all that could be desired. But there's also in the winning shot, uh, Lieutenant Jack Daisby, who uh, had come back from Japan and had brought with him a blood-sucking bat, which terrorized the inhabitants of the house. Um, but the one I really like is is Crab's Practice, which is a, a wonderful comic short story from 1884, in which Tom Crab and uh, a friend, Jack Barton, very close uh, name, are considering how best to drum up business for Crab's new medical practice in, in the town. And... Um, it's interesting that Willie Burton and a friend went down to Southsea to see Conan Doyle in Easter 1883 and stayed at Bush Villas at exactly the time that Conan Doyle was trying to drum up business for his own new practice. Yeah, and it's 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 really interesting that that, uh, that Doyle puts these kind of versions of, of Willie Burton into a number of his stories uh, because we, we have a letter... Uh, in existence uh, from, from Doyle, written in, in February 1884, uh, where he says, By the way, Burton, I hear, is writing a novel in which I am one of the principal characters, which I tell him is done in order to make sure of one subscriber to his book. So he knows that, but unfortunately, the, the novel either was never written or parts of it were written and it's been lost. But mm. uh, he knows that Burton was going to write him in as a character. So it's it's only fitting that he writes Burton into some of his stories as well. <laughs> On that point, um, it's also worth noting that when Conan Doyle's first completed novel proper, uh, The Firm of Girdleston, uh, was published in 1890, it was dedicated to uh, to, to Burton. And under the, he, he, he wrote the dedication in these terms. To my old friend, Professor William K. Burton of the Imperial University Tokyo, 
who first encouraged me years ago to proceed with this little story. I desire affectionately to dedicate it, the author. Hmm, very nice. So Conan Doyle clearly owed a debt to uh, Willie Burton, but uh, Conan Doyle also drew on Willie Burton for inspiration for this story, which um, is set in a really fascinating period of uh, modern Japanese history. Yeah, it, it's interesting how Doyle's kind of hooked into this. Um, and and you, you mentioned um, Owen Dudley Edwards earlier, Mark, uh, mm. in connection to the engineer's thumb. Uh, and Owen comments of, of uh, Jelen's voyage. It was thanks to Burton that Conan Doyle could set a story in Japan in 1892 and commence it with such assurance, in contrast to the weak settings of some of his narratives of the 1880s in Australia, New Zealand and South Africa, of which he knew nothing from first hand. Mm. Um, so we, we, we have no surviving uh, documentary evidence that Burton helped him with Jelen's voyage, but it, it, it seems beyond dispute yeah. um, that Burton will have given him this background and inspired him. And, and then Conan Doyle's imagination has gone into, in, uh, has, has gone to work on this, this absolutely fascinating um, and, and challenging period in Japanese history. Yes, and this was a period when Japan was coming out of centuries of isolation and, and now re-engaging with the West. Yeah, Japan's first major engagement with the West had occurred um, during the, the, the 16th century, uh, when Japan had been absolutely wracked by, by a whole series of, of interconnected civil wars, which had, had really begun with the outbreak of the Onin War in Kyoto in 1467. And then just just carried on throughout the entire 16th century. In the middle of the 16th century, you've got um, the Portuguese are the first to really arrive, and and they actually bring with them firearms, which um, the Japanese take to very quickly. Um, and so, uh, European advisors are in the background uh, throughout a, a lot of this period. And this this is really when modern Japan is 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 built up by the so-called three great unifiers, uh, Oda Nobunaga, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, and Tokugaru Iyasu. And, and this, this period comes to a close, really, with the, um, the Battle of Sekigahara in October 1600, which establishes the Tokugawa shogunate. Mm. And this is also the period in which the, 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 the whole new Japanese government system, worried by the influence of Europeans, and particularly the influence of Christianity, decides they want them out um, and and over the rule of the, the first three Tokugawa shoguns, uh, Ieyasu, Hidetada and Yimits, you have the, the Europeans edged out um, and there's there's some final uh, battles just, just to tidy things up, um, the siege of Osaka Castle in 1614-15 and the, uh, the, the great uprising of, of Christian Japanese uh, known as the Shimabara Rebellion in 1638. Once they're finished, Japan essentially closes itself off to the world, apart from a few Dutch merchants allowed into the, the island of Dishima uh, in Nagasaki Bay and Chinese merchants. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's it. And this period of isolation lasts until 1853. Uh, when uh, a, a small American fleet of, of four so-called black ships arrives, commanded by Commodore Matthew Perry uh, from America, demanding that Japan opens up. And this then unleashes the forces which have been held down in Japan for the past two centuries plus. 
and so there's a, a new period of, of of civil war. There's also a willingness to engage commercially with the West mm. uh, and, and 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 to actually realise that that the country cannot stay preserved in aspic forever. And Jelen's voyages set in the decade after Japan has reopened to the West, and uh, the the setting is the treaty port of Yokohama, which was um, essentially a safe port in which uh, Japanese merchants and traders could deal with traders from the West. Um, it began with the Americans, but then quickly the, the British, the French, the Germans, um, the Dutch extended their uh, trading influence into Japan through Yokohama. So tell us a bit more about what happens in, in, in Yokohama. Yeah, yeah, Yokohama in the, the early 1850s is a tiny fishing village. Um, and by the mid 1860s, it, it has become this this major trade trading port. It's it's just to the the the, the south of of what was then called Edo, the the capital of Japan, and was renamed Tokyo later in the 1860s. Um, but it, it becomes this this real entrepot where where you've got people from all over the world mixing with 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 the locals and the, the, this the kind of almost not quite, but almost lawless atmosphere. Um, you've got speculators, you've got adventurers. I mean, in um, Pat Barr, in her excellent book, The Coming of the Barbarians, um, describes it this way. By the early 1860s, Yokohama had become rather like a boomtown of the Wild West, flimsy, raffish, jaunty and harsh, and populated largely by jacks of all trades. Rootless, incurably optimistic men who like to make up laws to fit their own particular needs as they bowled along from one adventure to the next. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the sort of atmosphere you've 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 got in the place. Um, and then you've also got the the, the European diplomats tr- trying to to keep some degree of order in these sort of locations uh, whilst they negotiate with with the Japanese government. And the Japanese government is in flux at the time as well. One one of our notable diplomats there was um, Algernon Mitford, who later became first Baron Reedsdale. And he he was the grandfather of the infamous Mitford girls of the the 1930s and 40s. He he writes his, in his memories, his first impressions uh, of, of Yokohama, um, he describes it uh, this way. The most curious motley imaginable, English, French, Dutch, German, Italian, American, Greek, Chinese, all live together, the most incongruous elements that ever made up a happy family. <laughs> they are rather a rough lot in some cases, but good fellows enough in their way. And men who have travelled so much, generally, besides knowing how to take care of themselves, are helpful and kind to others in a way quite unknown in Europe. So he's got this this, mm. this kind of mixed view towards it. Um, he later, when he, he moved to, to Edo or Tokyo, he, like so many diplomats, becomes very snooty about Yokohama and, and mm. looks down on it. But to those who arrive there in the first place, it is this kind of rather wild, romantic, adventurous place. And it's it's the ideal setting for this this story by Conan Doyle. Yeah, exactly. The sort of setting where this roguish character of Jelland can emerge from. He fits entirely with this kind of background, exactly. Mm. And the framing device for this story has the benefit of looking back from a perspective of 20, 30 years since the heyday of the 1860s, looking back somewhat romantically at this this period of raffishness and roguish <laughs> behavior and you get that sense right at the beginning of Jelen's voyage with the framing device of the the clubland scene where an old japan hand one of the europeans who've been 
trading in Yokohama from the early days is is looking back fondly on 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 the port and then bringing forward this um, story of Jelland and McAvoy and and what happened and and you have the wonderful clubland setting at the beginning which would have been very familiar to Conan Doyle being you know a, a serial member of clubs Douglas Coe's written extensively on this idea of Conan Doyle um, seeing writing as a as a profession and furthering of his career would have involved him getting involved in many literary associations things like uh, the Authors Club which was set up by Walter Besant in um, 1891 which was an extension of the Society of Authors created by Besant in 1884 to protect the copyright interests of of authors. But also Conan Doyle was was very friendly with that idler set that we mentioned before with Barr and uh, Jerome K. Jerome and J.M. Barry who met at the Idlers Club and it was that club that gave the the name uh, The Idler to the, to the journal which first appeared in January 1892. But it wasn't just literary clubs that Conan Doyle was a member of. He became member of the Reform Club in June 1892, which had originally been a political club, but was now um, less politically affiliated and had members like Bram Stoker and and Henry Irving. And then in 1901, he became a member of the Athenaeum, which um, could boast former members, including Dickens and Bulwer-Lytton and Thomas Carlyle, many of his great heroes. And uh, in fact, Conan Doyle's uncle, Dickie Doyle, who'd uh, been the illustrator for Punch, had been a, a member of the Athenaeum and suffered um, an attack of apoplexy on the grand main staircase uh, in December 1883 and actually died the next day. So there's some unpleasant associations for Conan Doyle with the Athenaeum. But his most famous club, of course, is a fictional one. It's the uh, it's the Diogenes Club, which is also uh, centred on London's clubland is, and is home to the most unsociable men in London, including, of course, Mycroft Holmes. And, and Willie Burton um, in in Tokyo will have been member of, of of these sorts of sets out there, but obviously there'd be expats. Mm. Um, but it, it's 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 that sort of ring to this story, the the the, the framing of of, of Jelen's voyage of, of of the old yarn, yeah. the clubland yarn. That that I've I've no doubt it's it's such a shame we don't have any documentary. Um, evidence to 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 really go into this, um, but it, it, this is the sort of story that um, Willie Burton, as as someone who arrived in Japan in the later eighteen eighties, will have heard mm. from those those old Japan hands who were still knocking about in Yokohama and Edo at, at this period. Yeah, it definitely has the um, air of authenticity to it, mm. um, and that's one of the things I think that makes this quite an enjoyable story. Particularly, I think that the the opening sequence. Mm. The description of Jelen's fall is, I think, particularly well done, and you get a, there's an awful lot of character in those in in the few pages in which that um, that aspect of the story is covered. And 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 that really again it comes back to this this whole atmosphere of Yokohama at the time. Um, I mean, one of the, the the things I found is 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 one journalist at the time writing about Yokohama said, you know, the practice of sending a young chap to Yokohama to sober him up and make a respectable citizen out of him was like sending him to Hades to cool off. <laughs> <laughs> but as well as it being a uh, a rogue's paradise, um, Yokohama was also a place on the edge and Europeans would be genuinely in fear of life and liberty. Um, Conador rather simplifies this at the beginning of Jelen's voyage with this paragraph. There was a Tory party and there was a liberal party among the natives. And the question that they were wrangling over was whether the throats of the foreigners should be cut or not. But that is a massive simplification of what was a really quite complex um, political situation. Oh, very much so. Uh, As 
the Western forces moved into into Japan throughout the 1850s and 1860s, it stirred up all the underlying political problems um, that had, had been bubbling under in Japan uh, during the period of isolation. Um, and e essentially, the two parties Doyle talks about, the, the his so-called Tory party, mm -hmm. um, they're the supporters of the, the, the military government, the Tokugawa shogunate, the, 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 the Bakufu, uh, who were in power at that point and had been, you know, since the Battle of Sekigahara. Uh, and then the other party, the, the Liberal Party, were the uh, the party who wanted to restore the emperor to become head of state um, and and perhaps have some form of, not exactly westernised, but some form of parliament um, to, to go with that. Um, and the, 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 the main driving force for behind the imperial restoration side were, were it was centered around the southwestern provinces of um, choshu tosa and satsuma all of which were from families who, and, and clans who had been on the losing side at sekigahara yeah. so this stuff had been been bubbling under for many many years um but you've also got this 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 complicated side of of, of the the both sides were were a threat to, to to foreigners, um, often foreigners were also collateral damage in the fighting between the two parties. Um, but you, you you you've got this the shogun side unhappy about the disruption to their government that the the, the incursion of the foreigners has caused. The imperial side seeing you know, the emperor as the son of heaven, and we mustn't have these these foreigners interfering in in the way Japan runs itself. Um, so it, it's it's an extremely uh, extremely complicated uh, situation and, and uh, the cultural historian Ian Baruma uh, puts it well when he, he says the, the men who helped to bring down the Bakufu were inspired by ideas as well as self-interest. Some were xenophobes, some proto-liberals and some a bit of both. Mm -hmm. And this is what you're about both sides. You've got men who are a bit of both. Uh, I mean, one of Japan's great heroes of this, this period, um, Sakamoto Ryama was a, a, a swashbuckling samurai <laughs> Who changed from being um, one of the the, the, the so-called men of high purpose, the shishi, the imperial supporters? He was persuaded that that wasn't the way, the, and and that the way was to go through a, a kind of not quite democratic process, but certainly a process of of having some sort of constitution. So you, you've got these sort of characters going all the way through who 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 are. They're very contradictory characters, mm. and, and it, it's an extremely complicated situation. It was genuinely dangerous for for, for foreigners in, in Japan. Um, in 1862, um, Satsuma Samurai murdered a, a British merchant, uh, Charles L. Richardson, near the Tokaido Road. Um, in 1864, two British officers, Major Baldwin and Lieutenant Bird of the 20th Regiment, they were both assassinated in, in, in Kamakura. Um, and there was also points where, where Japanese guns would fire at, at, at foreign vessels. Um, and, and you actually get this one of these incidents mentioned in this story, the, um, the, the, the shelling of uh, Shimnoseki. Uh, in in 1864, which definitely gives the historical placement to the to the story, and it's the um, febrile atmosphere of 1860s Japan that really gives Jelen's voyage its its color, because otherwise it's a relatively simple story. Um, it is essentially a kind of heist movie of of a sort in that you get uh, the character of 
uh, of Jelland, who has fallen on hard times and he's brought with him uh, McAvoy and they plan to escape um, with uh, ill-gotten gains when when they're about to be discovered. But it's a very strange story too in that you're never quite sure what Conan Doyle's view is of these two characters. Um, You certainly get the sense that Jelland is this very strong character um, and McAvoy is this this very weak one. In fact, there's almost the implication that um, Jelland has almost mesmeric qualities. Um, it says at the beginning that uh, McAvoy was a good boy enough at the start, but he was clay in the hands of Jelland, who fashioned him into a kind of weak model of himself. It may have been animal magnetism or what you like, but the little man could pull the big one along like a 60-foot tug in front of a full-rigged ship. Um, you know, Conan Doyle's obsessed with this idea of people who are mental manipulation, people like Penclosa in The Parasite or uh, Octavius Gaster in um, The Winning Shot uh, or even Bellingham in, in Lot 249. You get the, many of these characters reappearing. And McAvoy is this sort of weaker character who gets pulled along um, in Jelen's wake. Um, but whether or not we're meant to feel any sympathy for them uh, is a bit of a unknown point really i think yeah, it's it's kind of thing where, where mcavoy is being manipulated um and and you wonder how much conan Doyle's putting in of, of himself and 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 others he knows it's interesting mm. that he's, he's called willie mcavoy which again i see as another reference to burton but it doesn't necessarily mean the characters like Burton. And he, he's described, as you've just said, as, as a big man, McAvoy, and, and Jelland being the smaller man. Um, but, but there's also a description of, of McAvoy's mother as yes. being this kind of little old lady in a white cap, which is just like you'll see photographs of, of, of Mary Doyle. He's almost describing his own mother here. Um, there's, there's lots of kind of complex stuff, I think, getting mixed in here. And But, but ultimately... McAvoy is is certainly not a Conan Doyle self identification because he's seen as as a bit cowardly, and, and it, it's it's interesting with with Jelland and McAvoy to think whether they're sympathetic characters or not. It, it, to 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 think about what's brought about their downfall, um, mm. which, which is actually um, addictive behaviour um, and gambling in particular. And uh, in the, the story, we're told that it was gambling that set Jelland wrong. Every night in the week, you would see him in the same place on the left-hand side of the croupier at Matheson's Rouge et Noir table. Um, and it, it, it's interesting to think about this, this addictive behavior issue. Um, because of Conan Doyle's father being an alcoholic, we, we do get quite a few references in his work to alcoholism. And gambling in this case you know the Jelland is obsessed with it. it it's it's addictive behavior again and and it, it's is he in control of himself mm. do we sympathize with his addiction it is is Doyle again thinking about his father and how in these sort of circumstances you're not entirely in control of what you're doing Jelland mm-hmm. probably needed McAvoy to lock up his checkbook in his desk absolutely yes it might have helped not not add his own checks to the pile <laughs> Yeah, and it leads us to this to one of the most peculiar things about the story. One that, and I personally, I find it not that satisfying, which is the which is the ending. Uh, in mm. that, I think the the first three quarters of this story are great in the in the the historical setting and the building of the characters of Jelland and McAvoy and what is happening between them. Um, and then we get their attempted escape. Um, mm. 
but uh, it might be that just that the conventions of the heist movie are so well formed in our minds now that actually this story doesn't conform to it for very good reason that it predates. So it's this isn't like the League of Gentlemen with Jack Hawkins and <laughs> and and uh, Dickie Attenborough or or even the Italian Job where you you got time to build up sympathy for the characters even though they're wrong uns. Um, and then you, uh, you 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 know you feel it when they don't get away with the the spoils mm. at the end. In this, you they're, they're much more negative characters. Um, you know, either Jelen's intensity or, or McAvoy's weakness. And it's it's also with with the ending. And I, I I don't know whether this is because of the Japanese setting. I I don't know whether it's meant to reflect a kind of samurai way out. Mm, that's a good end. point. This, this almost they've been in Japan for so long they, they've they've almost taken on a japanese mentality yes yeah that's an interesting point because this i i read it almost as being a story about defeatism again which mm. is something that conan Doyle plays on later in a pot of caviar in 1908 uh, which is a terrific story also set in the east uh, mm. which is uh, the boxer rebellion um and uh concerns the the fate of a group of europeans who who can hear the boxers uh, approaching um, their uh, compound and, and it's very much a case about you know don't be so defeatist in in the face of this but you could, but these characters are different they're 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 badens from the start and mm. um uh in a way it might f- the story might be better if the the whole character of McAvoy and the relationship with Jelland were played out a bit longer as though maybe McAvoy who's been pulled along with this is going to you know could in some way turn the tables on Jelland um, so that he maybe gets away with the bullion instead and Jelland disappears over the side. You know, there's something not quite right about the end of this story, I think. It doesn't quite hang together in this in the, in this case. Well, where it does, I, I, it certainly really does resonate with um, Pot of Caviar in, in terms of the, the ending is this is darkly ironic. Oh, yes. And, and, and the ending is, and again, this, this is maybe, I don't know... Uh, a, a sort of some of Conan Doyle's reading of, of of Japanese legend or myth or whatever he may know of it, but the the, the, the futility. Yes, it's, it's this futile gesture. It, it doesn't need to happen for any reason at all. You know, whether to evade capture or the fact that that the, the moment it happens, they could have got away. It, it's it's just it ends on this this note of of utter futility. Yeah, and it ends also with uh, some dead bodies aboard a ship disappearing off into oh, the yes. distance because that's another Conan Doyle trope that we've mentioned before. Um, and also, you know, reminiscent of of, of another um, legend that Conan Doyle was very closely associated with, the legend of the Marie Celeste. And and you've got that, again, directly referenced with, with the, the name of the Yawl here being the Matilda. Mm-hmm. And... Obviously, we also have in the Sherlockian canon the Matilda Briggs, which which is a direct reference to the the Mary Celeste case. So he's obviously his interest is 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 there all the time. Yeah, and Japan does appear a couple of times, if fleetingly, in the Sherlock Holmes stories. But the reference that's quite a sad one in its own way is is the reference in uh, the Dying Detective to um, the Black Formosa corruption. In eighteen ninety six, Willie Burton had. Um, moved to the main island of Taiwan, which at the time was known as um, Japanese Formosa. And he returned to Japan proper in, in 1899, but he had become seriously ill. And uh, and actually, he died of a liver infection not long afterwards. So there's quite a sad connection to the 
black formosa corruption in in that respect that might well be one of the possible Sherlockian connections here and and uh, another fleeting reference to to japan occurs in the uh, the greek interpreter uh, when mr milas is taken to the the mysterious country house um, and says i caught glimpses of velvet chairs a high white marble mantelpiece and what seemed to be a suit of japanese armor at one side of it and it, it's interesting that that Doyle brings in Japanese armor here because it's so different to to European armor, and in this context, it really adds a touch of of, of what you could call Oriental Gothic. Yes, absolutely. In, into the picture, I mean, you you if you read Algernon Mitford's descriptions when he's first out in Japan, he, he sees the samurai in armor, and he describes them as almost like demons and hobgoblins mm. because it's it's just so weird to the Western eye. Mm. Yes, it's put in there to be mm. another signifier. Mm unsettling mm. signifier in that mm. in a particularly unsettling scene actually so conan doll is using japanese references to add color and flavor to his writings but he was by no means the only author of his day to be influenced by japanese culture no there was um a, a real craze for what what became known as as a japonism in in western culture uh once japan had been opened up and and awareness of of a japanese uh, cultural and and artistic styles um, began to to seep into into the European mentality. Uh, you you've got it um, at an artistic level uh, with 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 artists like Vincent Van Gogh, uh, James Abbott McNeil Whistler, Aubrey Beardsley in particular was mm. very very influenced by by Japanese print designs. Um, but you you do you do have it in in other forms as well. It, it enters popular culture. Um, 1885, Gilbert and Sullivan produced The Mikado, huge success. Um, not quite at the, the same sort of sophisticated level as, as, <laughs> as Beardsley, perhaps, but very much showing how, how the Victorian public were interested in, in this, this, this rather exotic, strange, strange country, strange culture. And this, this later on, um, it, it's a Europe-wide thing um, at, at a different level to, um, to the Mikado. You've got uh, Puccini's Madama Butterfly, uh, which was, was, was premiered in 1904. And that in itself was based on a, on a short story, which had been influenced by the, the, the French writer, Pierre Loti, the, the great French writer, Orientalist, Romantic. Uh, he'd written a book called uh, Madame Chrysanthème, which transmuted itself into Madame Butterfly later mm. on. Uh, and Loti had written two other books in what, what became known as his Japanese um, trilogy, Japonerie d'Automne in 1889 and Le Troisième Jeunesse de Madame Brune in, in 1905. So th- this, is, this is really going throughout the culture. Um, but the other thing that really took off uh, was, was an interest in Japanese folk tales and myths and legends. Uh, and the first to really kick this off was, was our old friend Algernon Mitford mm. um, with his book Tales of Old Japan, uh, which was first published in 1871, where he'd translated a number of, of, of old Japanese legends. Uh, and he also added in some of his own experiences. Um, he, he, he was the first man to, to popularize in the West the legend of the 47 Ronin. Mm. Um, but he also put into into this book um, an eyewitness account of, of his own of, of watching the ceremony of, of Harakiri. Um, 
but other writers also took up this 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 whole theme. So you got um, books like Walter Denning's Japan in Days of Yore in 1887, uh, F. H. Davis's Myths and Legends of Japan in 1913, uh, and at, at a, a, a in a level of his own, you've got the uh, the Irish American writer Lafcadio Hearn, who also worked um, in Tokyo's Imperial University. Uh, but two of his his collections, absolutely wonderful writings, in Ghostly Japan, eighteen ninety nine, and Kwaidan in nineteen o four. And back in the world of uh, detective fiction again, um, you have figures like Arthur Morrison, the author of the Martin Hewitt um, series of uh, of detective stories, was um, an expert on Japanese and Chinese paintings. And Yuichi tells us in his annotated. Uh, Jelen's voyage that that collection was actually dedicated to the British Museum. So, what's your uh, final takeaway on on this story, then, Paul? It's it's a fascinating story. Uh, very interesting that that Conan Doyle has picked up on this this particular period, and and as we've discussed, this is probably because of his association with with Willie Burton. Mm. But it, it's quite amazing, really, um, when you look back at this period. Why more sort of adventure writers and so on didn't didn't set novels and, and stories in w- within this world because there's so much going on and you you think of the popularity in the the the, the 20th and, and into the 21st century certainly the popularity of the the, the, the samurai in western culture and the, you know, the the influence uh, of 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 kind of samurai ideas and samurai culture in a lot of, of, of Western popular fiction. It, it's it's interesting that, that Conan Doyle is one of the few of, of, of his era to, 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 to pick up on this. We, we've got plenty of reminiscences of, of people who were out there, but, but not much in the way of, of fiction. Mm. Yeah, and I, I was kind of left wanting more really with this short story in the sense that the the setting is so interesting that you could see a whole range of things spinning off i mean it's very hard to do anything it's very hard to achieve um what conan doyle is able to achieve in three thousand words but um you know you feel there's so much more that could be gone into and certainly when he's writing about jelland at the gambling table and the context of yokohama it's it's a very rich picture. I think it starts to peter out somewhat towards the end, um, which is a little bit of a shame. But, you know, I would have loved to have read more of what Conan Doyle had in mind for um, the adventures of a whole ro- range of characters in this setting because you could just see how this would be a really rich world um, with a whole range of roguish and raffish characters to enthrall and, and excite. Yeah, it, 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 you could see something along the lines of, of kind of Thomas Burke's Tales of Old Chinatown in London or, or, or Arthur Morrison's Stories of the East End. Mm. The, this kind of thing could have could easily have been developed set around, around Yokohama in the 1860s. Mm. So that brings us to the end of Jelen's Voyage. Uh, if you'd like to read the show notes, you can find them at doingsofdoyle.com. And if you'd like to support the podcast, then consider leaving a rating or review at your podcaster of choice, or you could become a patron at patreon.com forward slash doings of Doyle. So, Paul, what have we got on the podcast next time? Well, we've been talking today uh, about Conan Doyle's interest in photography, and we'll be going into photography again with the next show, uh, where we'll be discussing the Cottingley Fairies case with Dr. Merrick Burrow of Huddersfield University, 
curator of an exhibition on the Cottingley Fairies at the Brotherton Library in Leeds. Excellent. Really looking forward to that. So join us next month for our interview show. And until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.